Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. This morning's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 28. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire to the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. And the one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle. So they named him Esau. After his brother came out, with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Amen. Like so many people in the story of Scripture, see, I I think there's this tendency to think of people in the Bible as like, oh, they were living the right kind of life, and then God was like, that person That's the kind of person that I can get my name around. That's the kind of person I can do some stuff through. But when you read the actual stories, when you look into what is going on, what you find is something very different. And Jacob is no exception to this. He is, a a matter of fact, part of the rule of this. Throughout the narrative of Scripture, we see God coming alongside the most unlikely people. And we see that God's promises to his people. God's promises for the world are unfailing. They outrun our questions, our doubts, our failures. What we see over and over again is that God is faithful. So friends, if you're here today, and maybe you don't even know why you're here, maybe you got dragged here. If you're here today and you feel like your whole life you've been the last one picked, if you are the least likely person to live a life that glorifies God, If you have wrestled with God for a long time and still don't really know what to say about it all, if you feel like you're far from home, we're so glad that you are here. Welcome. The scriptures tell us this long and beautiful story of our God drawing near to people exactly like that. So let us look into this story of Jacob together. See, Jacob's story like any other good story, begins long before he appears on the scene. In Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter in all of the Bible, God creates this big and beautiful world. And as we discussed, we discussed this during our Cultivated series a couple weeks ago, this world is not just a place that he will rule over, but it's a temple. He's constructing a place where he can be near to his creation. And so God is, in every sense of the word, drawing near to us. And he creates this incredible, dynamic world where we can be near to him. 
But it doesn't take long for things to begin to fall apart. In Genesis chapter 3, humanity tries to subvert the order of this world that God has created good, this world that he created and called good and very good. Adam and Eve try to cut God out of the equation and to be like God. They want to call the shots. They want to be captains of their own fate. But what they discover in their pain is that there is no life apart from life with God. God is life in and of himself. And the only way that we find life, the only way that Adam and Eve found life, was through their relationship with God. And once they begin to try to cut him out of the process, what they find is the opposite of life. They find death. And in Genesis chapter 4, just one chapter later, we see how quickly things have have broken to an almost unspeakable place. In Genesis chapter 4, brother kills brother, Cain kills Abel. We are just four chapters into the Bible. We're just three chapters removed from God creating this incredibly beautiful world. And now we have brother taking up arms against another brother. In Genesis 6, God, it says that God is so overwhelmed with sorrow that he determines that he will flood the earth. God started with this place of shalom, started with this place of peace, and now the world has unraveled to a point where he's like, I don't, I don't even know if I did the right thing in making this world. And through it all, And in Genesis 6, God finds uh, this man, Noah, and he makes a covenant with Noah. He says, I'm going to preserve your life because I'm not willing to give up on this world just yet. And he preserves Noah as he floods the earth. And he restarts this creation project through Noah and his family. But in Genesis chapter 11, just a couple of chapters later, we see that humanity is up to its own ways, its old ways. You see, in Genesis chapter 11, it says that all of the people have a common language, that they're all speaking and and going after the same thing. And they, they assemble at this place called Babel. And they've all come together. And you would think like, Hey, you know, if we, if we all could speak a common language, if we all could understand each other, maybe that would help with some of the problems, especially you consider like 21st century America, right? Like if we could all understand each other, if we all listen to one another, that'd be a really good thing. But in Genesis chapter 11, that's not what's going on. In Genesis chapter 11, the, the narrator tells us that the people determined that they're going to build a tower up to the heavens. It looks kind of like a siege ramp. You see, the people are still trying to circumvent relationship with God. They want to lay siege to the heavens. They want to say, God, we don't need you. We can run this world on our own. And so we see these patterns that develop in the narrative of Genesis. And Jacob's story, this story that we're going to be immersed in for the next several weeks, is a part of this narrative. It's a part of what is God going to do about it when everything seems like it's falling apart As the peace of Genesis 1 and 2 is thoroughly shattered, God does not give up. Friends, God keeps speaking, keeps drawing near, he keeps leaning in. And in Genesis chapter 12, just one chapter after this human project to lay siege to the heavens, we see that God speaks to a man named Abraham. And it's incredible, when God wants to fix the world, He doesn't go and climb up into the heavens and start, you know, throwing lightning bolts and start figuring it out. What he does is he draws near to one single person, and he speaks to a man named Abraham. 
Jacob's grandfather was this man named Abraham. Abraham was, in the grand scheme of things, nobody special. We first meet Abraham in a genealogy buried in Genesis 11. And Genesis 11 tells us that Abraham is married to a woman named Sarah. And the first thing that the text tells us about this woman named Sarah is that she is barren. Now, Ecclesia, if you are here with us for the long haul and you open up the scriptures with us each week, you'll hear me say this a lot. But when you get this kind of first detail about a character, it will become so important to the, to the story that is being told about that person. So the first thing that we hear about Sarah is that she is barren. That's what we know about her at this moment. In Genesis 12, verses 1 and 2, the text tells us that the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. What is God's promise to Abraham? What does he say to him? He says, Go, and I will make you into a great nation. He's, he's saying to Abraham, I will provide for you. Sarah is barren, yes, but out of your life will come a great nation. And as we fast forward through the story, we're going to kind of skim at, at, at like a high level this Abraham story. As we fast forward again to Genesis 15, verse 5, the Lord says to Abraham, Look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able. So shall your descendants be. God keeps coming to Abraham, this man married to a barren woman, and saying, you will have so many descendants that you won't even be able to count them. Now, what's the problem? Sarah cannot have children. And so God keeps approaching Abraham with this impossible promise. He keeps saying, trust me, trust me, and things will not be as they appear now. And Genesis 15 tells us that as God spoke this word of promise to him, that Abraham believes him, that against all hope, against all of the circumstances, Abraham says, yeah, I, I believe it. I'm going to hold on to this promise. As we continue fast-forwarding in Genesis 18, three men come to Abraham and prophesy that Abraham will have a son. Now, you have to understand, at this point, between the, the first promise in Genesis chapter 12 and this, now this promise in Genesis 18, decades have amassed. When God first approached Abraham and said, you're going to have a son, I'm going to make out of you a great nation, it wasn't out of the realm of possibility. But now, Genesis 18, decades later, Abraham is the kind of old that probably shouldn't be having kids. And Sarah overhears this promise to, these, to, to Abraham. She overhears it, and she laughs. It says in verse, verses 11 and 12 of Genesis 18, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. That is a long, drawn-out way of saying she's already been through menopause. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? But the Lord responds to Sarah, and he turns to her, and it's one of the moments, it's such a beautiful moment in Scripture. If you read Genesis carefully, and I encourage you to do this, pay attention to who God speaks to. 
God often speaks to those who are outcast. We see this first with Hagar as Abraham, like he sees, he hears this promise that he's going to have a son. So Abraham takes matters into his own hands and he says, I'll, I'll, I'll make a son. I'll marry my wife's servant and we'll have a son that way. And he has Ishmael and eventually Abraham has to send her away and God meets her. And then in this moment, God speaks to Sarah And he says, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah's laughing. She has this kind of cynical, you know, that kind of bitter laugh where somebody says something pretty cutting, but then they try to laugh after, and you're like, not sure. You're like, I think you just insulted me. Actually, I'm sure you just insulted me, but then you did it like, ha ha. It's like, now it's awkward for both of us. And Sarah's laughter is one of like, yeah, God, we've been carrying around this promise for years. You keep saying we're going to have a son and keep not delivering. So whatever. Sarah's laughter is the laughter of bitterness, of cynicism. But God says to her, he says, is anything too wonderful for me? And as we skim this story so quickly, in chapter 21, the promise that God has been keeping before them comes to bear. Sarah, impossibilities of old age and barrenness and all, gets pregnant and bears a son. And in all of it, and this is one of the things I love about the biblical story, is there's a sense of humor to it. In all of it, somebody has the great idea to name this son Isaac, which means laughter. And Sarah, reflecting on this boy's name, this young boy that has come to her at such a late stage in her life, says, God has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. It's the kind of laughter that is saturated with joy, so overcome with surprise, so hilarious in the face of the circumstances. Sarah laughs, but it's no longer the laugh of cynicism or desperation or bitterness. Now it's the laughter of hope, the laughter of joy, the laughter when God truly comes through on his promises. It's the laughter, the first moment of the laughter of the resurrected Jesus as he shares a meal with his friends. God laughs in the face of our impossibility. And it is this story that foreruns Jacob. It is this story that leads us into the Jacob story. Jacob is, as Frederick Buechner calls him in his novel, the son of laughter. Isaac is Jacob's father. Abraham is Jacob's grandfather. And as we turn over to Genesis 25 and the story of Jacob, what we see is that God is reversing the normal course of events in our lives. Jacob is the son of a miracle, much like Isaac is. And the long arc of this Genesis narrative is trying to help us to see that no matter the circumstances in our lives, No matter the failure, no matter what you've done, God's promise for you and for this world stands. And in Genesis 25, we see that God, the one who was and who is and who is to come, stands against reality as it's presented to us. God will later call himself, he will say, my name is I am. And what we see is that God's name, I am, is always greater than our circumstances. It's always greater than it is what it is. Friends, today, if you're here and your circumstances, your past, 
what you've done or what's been done to you seems like it will forever define you. That it places impossible barriers on your life. I hope that you will see just a glimpse this morning that there is nothing in your life, nothing that is going on, none of your circumstances that can stop the love of God for you. And here in Genesis 25, we see this incredible reversal in the life of of Jacob. We see it in the life of his parents, Rebekah and Isaac. We see these forerunners to the gospel of Jesus, that God will overcome every distance, that God will overcome every height, every depth, that truly there is nothing in all of creation that could ever separate us from God's love. So let us turn to the text again. We're going to read a little more from the text that Rebecca read for us in Genesis 25. It says, Rebecca, daughter of Bethuel, Arabian, of Padan Aram, sister of Laban the Arabian, was Isaac's wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord, for his wife was barren. Again, we see this trope. We see this pattern. Sarah was barren, Jacob's grandmother. Now Rebekah is barren, Jacob's mother. And soon we'll see that Jacob's favorite wife cannot have kids. We see this pattern over and over again. You know, Pete Scazzaro talks about how often our patterns of life repeat patterns that have come before us. Any of you ever got the chance to sit down and talk to your grandparents and hear about their lives? Have you ever been able to see a little bit of you in their lives? You know, one of the things Courtney and I used to have, I, we used to go to school close to where my, my grandmother and my grandfather lived. They lived in a trailer park in Oklahoma, which is like the most endangered species on earth. Like tornadoes just ripped through there, right? And, you know, never had a problem. But they lived in this little trailer in Oklahoma. And when I was at school at Oral Roberts and Courtney was there, we would get a chance to go over there and just be with them. Uh, my grandfather from... Yeah, most, most of my life, I don't remember him ever getting out of the chair that he sat in. And he would do this thing. My, my grandmother like, is this incredible woman. Uh, she's gotten to come visit us up here a couple times. And she, she would wait on him hand and foot. And my grandfather, like, he loved every minute of that. He was really into that. And so my grandmother would bring my grandfather his lunch on a tray And then my grandfather would finish with it, and then he sat in this chair that was right beneath this cabinet or this uh, countertop, and he would just take the tray, put it over his head. It was probably most of the lifting that he did during that day, and just put the tray right above him. And Courtney and I would be sitting there, and my my grandmother, without any complaint or any, like, grumbling at all, would just come and take the tray. And as my grandfather would do that, I would look at Courtney and be like, behold your future. It's like, and Courtney's like, yeah. (laughs) Your future's going to be alone. But we see a glimpse of our future in the reality of our grandparents. uh, Pete Scazzaro says that Jesus may live in 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 your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones. And so we have to begin to do the work of unpacking this. What we see in the story of Jacob is there is this pattern, this cyclical pattern of barrenness. Again, we meet it here in Genesis 25. And remember the promise to Abraham? The promises of God were not simply that Abraham himself would have a son, but that through his life a great nation would come forth. We run into a problem here right away. How can this happen if if Abraham's only son has also married a barren woman? 
But this time, the writers of Genesis don't draw it out. They simply say, Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife, and the Lord grants his prayer. It happens so quickly. The, the first reversal we see is a familiar one in this passage. God overcomes the barrenness of Rebekah. And this time, it doesn't take decades. Like in the story of Abraham, we draw this out over chapters, over a lifetime. But this time, it says that Isaac prays, and Rebekah conceives. And not just one son, but she conceives two children, because God is this incredible God of abundance. And in tracing out, so we started with Abraham, we saw this decades long where he's holding on to this promise, and then we move to Isaac, and it says that Isaac prays, and God grants his request, and Rebekah has children. And in tracing out this story, we meet a tension that we all feel in our lives. How many of you sitting in here today would say that there's barrenness in your life? Maybe you yourself want to have a child Maybe you want to be married. Maybe you want to get a job or, or a different job. Maybe you feel hopelessly riddled with anxiety. Maybe you're looking for community and you just feel all alone. And here in Rebecca and Isaac's story, we see this incredible turnaround in a moment. Isaac prays and it all works out. Now, how many of you are experiencing that kind of barrenness? You've prayed. You've prayed over and over again. You're reading this text where, where Isaac prays and God grants his request. And you're just sitting there saying, like, it doesn't work like that. I have prayed and I have begged. And I have asked and still this barrenness persists. Ecclesia, the story that is building in Genesis, is trying to hold two truths together. And, and it's one of my prayers as your pastor that we can be a people who can live unapologetically into both of these things. The first is that God is able. The Genesis story is about God speaking words of life where there is none. It starts when God speaks out of darkness and he says, let there be light, and he creates the world. But it continues with every cycle of barrenness. As God says to Abraham, you will have a son. I know Sarah's barren, but it will not be the last word. It continues as God speaks to Isaac and to Rebekah. And he grants them children. Friends, God is able. And you can ask for those things. I love that it just says that Isaac prayed. Isaac prayed for his wife and she conceived not just one son, but two sons. Where is the barrenness in your life? Where are you feeling the longing and the ache? You can ask God. You can come to him with all of your desires and say, God, would you, would you do something? Would you do something like you did for Isaac, like you did for Abraham? Would you do something beyond what I can ask or imagine right now? That's the first truth that I would love for you to just hold. But the second one, and this is often where we're challenged. Because you might be sitting here saying, like, if God is able, then why do I still feel this way? Why doesn't God just answer my prayers? Why doesn't God just do the thing that I want him to do? I think about Abraham and, like, how his, he receives this promise that he will have a son and decades go by. And don't you think Abraham prayed just like Isaac? Abraham's got this promise, and he's probably saying, okay, Lord, like, now would be a good time. You told me that I will have a son. Do we have to wait any longer? I, I feel like I've waited long enough. 
Don't you think that Abraham prayed, like, I don't want to be an old dad. Can we, can we hurry this along? And the response to Abraham's prayer throughout the decades, throughout the years, was essentially keep holding on, keep trusting, keep walking with me. And what God is trying to show us in the midst of all of this is that God's covenant to us His covenant for us, His covenant of unfailing love and mercy will always outrun our conditions. Genesis is not interested in giving us easy answers to hard questions. The life of Jesus Himself runs this paradox of prayers answered and prayers unanswered. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus wrestling in prayer, struggling with the forces of darkness and the heavy weight of his own calling. And he prays to God, his Father, as he has done so many other times. You see, during Jesus' ministry, he would pray and blind eyes would be opened. He would pray and the lame would get up and walk. And at this moment, at Jesus' hour of greatest need, he is praying to his Father. And he says, Father, if there's any other way than this cross... Can we go that way? And what does Jesus receive? Silence. As Jesus is praying so fervently, he's literally sweating blood. The moment of his greatest need, Jesus reaches out to his Father, and his prayers go unanswered. And unlike Isaac, Jesus doesn't receive a quick answer to his prayer. Rather, he receives the cup of sorrow, a cross, And he drinks it down fully on behalf of the world. You see, Jesus lives into this tension of prayers answered and prayers unanswered. And the thing that is consistent in the life of Abraham and the life of Jesus is that in spite of the circumstances, God is drawing near to us. And he's wanting us to know our lives through relationship with him. The beauty of Jacob's life, and one of the reasons I'm so excited that we get to walk through this series, is that we will see this process of coming to trust God play out over the course of a lifetime. And friends, we often, uh, we often mistake what God is doing over the long course of our lives. We experience what we experience in a moment, but God sees the whole, and he is drawing us into his life And we'll see in the life of Jacob someone for whom trust and surrender doesn't come real easily. Some of you are saying, amen. It's like, yeah, I want to trust God, but I have a lot of questions. This is a good series for you. The life of Jacob, as we sort of traced it through Abraham and through Rebekah and Isaac, is inviting us to trust God, to see that he is pursuing us, that he is working behind the scenes to draw us to himself. Jacob is born to a barren woman. And as as we will see next week, he is given the rights of the firstborn son, even though he is the secondborn. Jacob becomes this rags-to-riches story, accumulating vast amounts of wealth, even though he started out as a fugitive. And we'll read through all these stories. And as we go through these stories, a theme will emerge over and over again that God is drawing near. And here's the really remarkable thing. No matter the circumstances, no matter what Jacob does, and we'll see that Jacob's character is not exactly always, uh, shall we say, on the up and up. No matter what happens to Jacob, and a lot of stuff does happen to him, God is unfailing in his pursuit of Jacob. 
and his promise to him. God is restless until Jacob will come at rest in him. Ecclesia, we talked above about where you find yourself. Are you praying for things that are simply not happening? Are you believing God for something tangible and real and finding only barrenness and silence? The first word that the Jacob story is saying to you is that, yes, God overcomes barrenness. Yes and amen. But the second is like it, that he can be trusted with your deepest longings. That you can walk alongside him over the course of a lifetime and come to know him even through your suffering. And the second thing is the ultimate promise of God, that that God would bring us to himself Friends, I don't know whether God will give you the exact thing you're asking for. Can I tell you this as your pastor, though? It's okay to ask. It's okay to bring those things before God. You don't need to do that dance where, like, God, if it's your will. Like, he, he wants to hear your voice. He wants to hear your heart. God is going to come alongside you when you feel that ache of brokenness, when you feel that ache of longing. And so many of you, like, I, I, I have the pleasure of walking beside you, and I know your aches and your longings are not for trivial things. They're not for selfish things. Some of you long to be a part of a family. You want to be a husband or a wife. That is a beautiful thing. And I know you're praying to God. You're bringing that before him. Some of you have struggled to, to conceive children. And, man, like, God is coming alongside you. Some of you are just looking for purpose in your life. Whatever you find yourself today, can I just say it's okay to ask God. He is not offended by your your requests or your questions. He is kind. He loves you very much. And friends, during all this background that we trace as we kind of get into this Jacob series, all that led up to the birth the focus of this series, this man Jacob, is this incredibly complex tapestry that God is weaving. Things will not always go easy for Jacob in his life as they don't go easy for us. We will see that he suffers through some incredible difficulties, but through it all, God keeps showing up. God keeps pursuing him. God's covenant for us outruns his circumstances and his conditions. Jacob is a character in the story of grace, the story of God bringing the whole world to himself. And the main character in this story, Jesus of Nazareth, would be born to the descendants of Jacob. As as God promised to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Jesus comes on the scene thousands of years later, fulfilling that promise. And friends, Jesus gave his life so that no matter what would happen in our lives, no matter our circumstances, no matter our condition, God never quits. He never stops. There is no barrenness, nothing in our past that he cannot overcome. And he has called you his own. And the, the question I have for you as we, as we end today is what would it mean for you to trust him? Are you holding out and just saying, I need this to, to come true. I need this prayer to be answered. We've seen that God is able. He will overcome the barrenness in our lives. But God is also doing something else. He's trying through our circumstances, through our pain, through our moments to draw us to himself. He's inviting us to trust him. And So what would it mean for you to trust him with your life today? What would it mean for you to give yourself over, to to give your hurts and lay your burdens down? And to trust that God is working even in the places where you can't see him. Even in the places where you feel broken. Orchestrating grace and goodness for your life.
Jesus is extending his arms and saying, you can trust me because I have gone before you and there is nothing that I would stop at to, to have you close to me. The Jacob story reveals this God who relentlessly pursues us. It reveals complexity and I'm excited to walk through this complexity with you as we see God answering prayers and as we see God delaying answers to prayers and through it all, God is drawing near to each one of us. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Beautiful Jesus, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who pursues us. Lord, you truly are restless for us. God, that you stop at nothing in order for us to find life and life to the full, and that life is only found in you. And so, Jesus, wherever we come today, wherever we come from, whatever we brought into this space, Lord, would you help us to trust you with it? God, that even though the circumstances might not immediately change, that we would draw deeper into the well of your unfailing love and mercy and to see that you are drawing near to us. God, you're not just the God who overcomes. You're not just the God who grants wishes, but you are the God who suffers alongside of us, the God who draws near to us in every moment. And that as we see on your cross, we are not undone by suffering, we are not irreparably broken by it, but it is a vehicle and an invitation to resurrection. So Jesus, would you help us to trust you in this moment, to trust that the promise for us is that you would be our God and we would be your people. To trust that you love us even in the face of our bleakest circumstances. Jesus, we ask all these things in your name, in the beautiful and strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite Alex. She's going to offer our communion meditation this morning. And as she does that, um, uh, once we uh, go through this, I'll introduce communion to you. Hi, everyone. So... I've been baking the communion bread since about the time we started meeting weekly here. And this week I did not. Hope Rogers stepped up because I was really busy yesterday. It's still vegan, but today it's glutinous. There are crackers if needed. Um, but because of that experience that I've been having, Ian wanted me to share what that's been like and what I've learned. And I was really happy to be able to do that because it's given me the opportunity to answer some questions and struggles that I'd had with the idea of communion. Because I feel like, at least in my experience of a couple different kinds of American Protestant Christianity, we've kind of purged our practice of materiality and of ritual to the point where the one thing we have left, which is communion, kind of I wouldn't really understand its role. Like, I guess it makes sense for us to have done that because a lot of what Protestantism is protesting against is a form of religion where you can kind of just do your religion instead of necessarily having a heart conviction. But I would ask myself if the bread and the wine aren't like magic, if they don't save you, what do we even do that for? And that's a question that kind of gradually went away as I would spend every Saturday afternoon needing bread. Because for me, that's a really meditative activity. 
And I would be there for 15 minutes straight, just like punching and folding and punching and folding and being very physically confronted with the body of Christ and with the idea of the body of Christ and having my thoughts move in that direction, very focused. And I not only realized that this was the body of Christ before me, but that I was part of the body of Christ, one of its members. And I realized that that fact doesn't change or decrease or become less significant when we set aside the idea of transubstantiation or the idea of there being some mystical power in bread itself. Because, like, it's bread. It's not flour anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not flour anymore. It's not even dough. It has become food. It's, it nourishes us. And when we take it in together, it becomes us. It becomes the body of Christ. And we need to constantly remind ourselves of that responsibility. It's physical. We're the body of Christ. It's always going to be physical. And I think that's the urgency that we hear in First John. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, he reiterates this with almost every sense. There's almost a panic there. He's saying, don't spiritualize away the fact that you live in the world. And Christ did too. And you eat the same bread that he gave you. And you carry on the life that he put into you and you fuel that life with the bread. There's going to be materiality in our spiritual lives because they're our lives and that's going to be there whether we want it to or not, whether we build it in on purpose or not. But Christ gave us a form for building materiality into our practice on purpose and for taking materiality captive and keeping ourselves alive in memory of him. And that form, it's a ritual, just because like materiality, ritual is also something we can't get away from. Like, very simply, even if you've eaten bread once, you're going to have to do it again eventually in a measure of time. And as a church, as a family, we, that means we can gather together and share a meal that reminds us of our shared identity and the single shared source of our strength in Christ. And that need for Christ's strength is what communion satisfies. And that's what makes it special and powerful. And that just means it's an ordinary meal for which we should always be hungry. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.